Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. One of the spoils of gaining a majority in both the House and Senate in a state like Pennsylvania is being able to draw state legislative district and congressional boundaries that are conducive to candidates being elected or reelected that belong to the same party as the majority. It's often referred to as gerrymandering. Right now, Republicans are in the majority in Pennsylvania, and most analysts would suggest that districts were drawn to ensure Republicans fare well. Make no mistake, Democrats would do the same thing. Changing the way reapportionment happens in Pennsylvania is often mentioned as a state government reform. Our guest today wants to make it happen. Joining us is Democratic State Senator John Wozniak of Cambria County. Senator Wozniak, thank you for joining us today. Oh, let me hit the right one. There you go. Senator, you're there. There we go. Yep, I'm here. Okay. Let me tell our listeners at home, we know that uh, this is one of the issues that uh, is very important to uh, Smart Talk listeners because we hear about it often. If you have a question or a comment about reapportionment, reapportionment, redistricting, as it's often referred to, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, Senator, what was your thinking behind this proposal? Well, actually, it was Senator Lisa Busco that brought it up to me because uh, of all the districts, the 35th district was actually one of them that the Republican uh, Supreme Court held up and said, this is outrageous. So uh, in the last reapportionment system, uh, the, the actually controlled Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, uh, controlled by the dominant Republicans, uh, said that even, even they found it uh, uh, unbelievable that they would be so uh, blatantly political in the decision-making process. They went up and uh, had to redraw the maps, but uh, uh, the 35th district has obviously changed dramatically. So uh, Senator Bosco said, why don't you be the champion of this? I said, oh, let me take a look at it. So what we're doing is we're taking a look at the California law that basically creates a citizen commission that would determine where the political boundaries fall in reapportionment with the final decision, because the way our Constitution is written to be uh, voted on by the House of Representatives, the Senate of Pennsylvania, by the, and by the governor. So just for background purposes, where is the 35th uh, Senatorial District? It's Bedford County, Cambry County, and Clearfield County. Okay. In Clearfield County, with the exception of Dubois and Sandy Township, because Senator Scarnati wanted to keep it for his district, but they wouldn't let me keep uh, Wimber and Connemont Township and Somerset District, Somerset County in the 35th District, because it would have made the numbers more conducive to a Democratic candidate. So when, you know, when I say uh, Senator John Wozniak from Cambria County, that's your home county, but obviously uh, other counties uh, are part of the other counties sure. as well. When you say outrageous, what would you, how would you describe outrageous? What do you mean by outrageous? The district was outrageous. I, I think when you look at the way they, they redrew the numbers, and I'll tell you what, if the R's, if the D's were in power, I'm sure they'd do the same identical thing. Uh, but this has been going on for 30 years now, because each time in the past 30 years reapportionment has occurred, the Republican Party's controlled the House and the Senate. I'm not so sure if they had the governor or not, but they had a lot of control over that determination. And this one finally culminated in a, cir- a circumstance that, in my opinion, you've created a permanent majority in the House and a permanent majority in the Senate. And I don't think a makeup of Pennsylvania that's over a million more Democrats than there are Republicans, having a permanent majority in the legislature, obviously there's been some doctoring of the numbers. Um, what's happened in my area is uh, historically we've took in consideration, obviously, the counties and the municipalities, 
but also the culture. And uh, I'm becoming very uh, good friends with the people in Bedford County. But it's interesting because you go over that Allegheny Ridge into Bedford County, it's a different part of Pennsylvania. When, when, when you're on the western side of the Allegheny Ridge, it's more of a Midwestern personality and culture. When you go west, it, it, it shifts. So what you have is a- actually a rural district that all of it's relatively poor, but different ways of looking at the world. You know, I think back to civics classes and, uh, you know, our the goals of our government and what, what we're supposed to be doing in a representative government. And the people are elected, like yourself, to lead and to think about what's best for their constituents, what's best for the people. And what you're describing, and I mean, I'm not naive, <clears throat> what you're describing is just blatant politics. Sure. And... Look, you're never going to take politics out of politics. I get that. I'm a big boy. I I can handle that kind of stuff. But what we've seen is that the slow, steady progression of uh, of power power corrupts absolutely, absolute power corrupts absolutely, whatever that saying is. But what we have is is the majority party has really taken a hold, and they have put a stranglehold on Pennsylvania. They have taken away. They've given Democrats good, very good. Uber seats, but they've also given the Republicans very strong Uber seats and more of them, so that the elections are no longer the general election where the districts might be a little competitive between uh, competing ide- ideologues and mm, where centrists might get elected, but rather where those primaries become more important and those chances, because statistically nobody shows up for primaries except for the highly motivated people. So you're going to get the ideologues on the left and the ideologues on the right. And the word compromise, consensus, and work together isn't in their vocabulary. And you can see that happening right now in the budget debacle that we have in Pennsylvania. Well, let's talk about that because, you know, this has been around for some time. But what you're describing right now, many people would agree that uh, we live not just in Harrisburg, in Pennsylvania, but in Washington especially, in a very partisan, a very polarized uh, government. We have split government in both Washington and Harrisburg. And what you've just described, uh, it sounds as if it makes it very difficult for the moderates, those who are willing to reach across the aisle and compromise, for those people to get elected so you do get the people at the extremes of, of their parties. Would you agree that that's a big factor in our polarization? Absolutely. People like me, the moderates, and, I, I, and I've seen them, and they're leaving Harrisburg now because they're just so frustrated, uh, we're becoming dinosaurs. And unfortunately, the reality is, if you everything's a bell curve. If you look, if you make a, the makeup of the voting citizens of Pennsylvania, the majority of them, whether they be Democrats or Republicans, are moderates. They probably have more in common with uh, the moderates of the opposite party than they have with the, the, the far right or the far left. But their candidates aren't getting elected because of the way the system is set up in the primaries. Now, you know, just as an aside, uh, walking by our newsroom this morning where we have uh, three television sets on the uh, cable news channels, and uh, I saw the headline on CNN about uh, uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders uh, debating which one is more progressive. Now, the first thought that came to my mind is, okay, that's in the primary. Ted Cruz has done the same thing with Donald Trump, and the other Republicans have done it in the presidential, on the primary in the uh, Republican side. But once there's a nominee for president, and the same thing holds true in governor here in Pennsylvania, maybe even on the legislative level, is that in the primary, everyone's racing to the right or racing to the left. But once the primary is over and there's a nominee, then everyone wants to try to come to the middle to get those independent voters. 
Right. Not maybe statewide, but not the way reapportionment has occurred. What you have created is uh, these 90% Democratic seats and these 90% Republican seats. The primary becomes the race. Once somebody wins that primary, they've got the general. So you're going to find uh, the ideologically, uh, more ideologically uh, uh, leaning people, their constituency is highly motivated. So when you only have a 15% turnout in a primary, that person gets elected. That person then becomes the candidate and the general election winner because the district's 90% of whichever party you belong to. There's no need to go and garner votes from somebody else because that party's not going to go anyplace else. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest today is uh, Democratic State Senator John Wozniak of Cambria County. We're talking about a proposal that uh, he will introduce soon having to do with uh, how Pennsylvania draws up its legislative and congressional districts. We'll talk about that commission he's proposing in just a few minutes. If you have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. Senator, I'm, I'm curious, how is the legislature different than when you were first elected? I was elected quite a while ago. Uh, I, I think uh, uh, the Fourth Estate, 24-7 television, Facebook, all those things have made campaigns different. It used to be a lot of grassroots. You had people in the committees, both Democrats and Republicans. They'd work the streets. Now it's become a game of money. It's become a game of those uh, uh, mailers that you get and the television and uh, I, I think uh, the impersonality of it. And, and what's happened is in Pennsylvania, I guess uh, throughout history, go back, go back to Roman times, is that people don't vote for candidates. They find reasons to vote against them. And as much as people sit there and say they don't like negative advertising, the empirical evidence shows that, hey, they, they make you dislike a certain person and you vote against them, not for another candidate. And that, that seems to be the difference. There was much more collegiality, too. I mean, when you're seeing the, this change out here and now this inability to compromise, to, to, to come to a consensus, is, is, is people are amicable, but you could see that uh, there used to be a lot more uh, interaction with the two with the two, not necessarily the two chambers, I think the House and Senate are different, but uh, uh, with the two parties within the chambers themselves, a lot more interaction before than there is now. Before, did you go out with uh, Republicans, out to dinner, socialize with sure. Do you sure. do that now? Me, I'm still a pretty gregarious guy, so I don't have a problem <laughs> with that. <laughs> All right, let's take a phone call from Ed in Marietta. Ed, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Senator. Good morning. Um, good morning. Okay, my question is... How much of this might be motivated by national entities, you know, maybe the National Republican Party or even perhaps theoretically the National Democratic Party or the Koch brothers or the billionaires or the 1%? How much is this being put in place, this gerrymandering, by entities outside of the state? All right. Thank you for your call, Ed. Okay. Good question. Uh, I'm, not so, I'm not so sure it's entities outside the state except for maybe they, they finance campaigns. But I think uh, if you have a situation when you have absolute control, your mission politically is to maintain that absolute control. Um, uh, and I think it's a, it's a very myopic thinking, but it's a natural progression of what, how power operates. So I don't really think the Koch brothers or the Democrats or Republicans, uh, they sit down and say, hey, it's what they do see. is like, look, here's our opportunity to strengthen our numbers. And I don't fundamentally have a problem with that. But the whole entire strategy now, particularly when you look at the Senate of Pennsylvania, is to strengthen their numbers so that they have a two-thirds majority to overrun uh, a gov- to, to override a governor's veto. 
We'll, we'll never get anything done if we put that over there. And once you have a majority that large, there's no competition. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is Democratic State Senator John Wozniak of Cambria County. We're talking about reapportionment, and he has a proposal to change how Pennsylvania draws its legislative and congressional district lines. We welcome your questions and comments. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Senator... Um, first of all, I just want to make sure that I'm, I'm accurate in this. Uh, you have not introduced this legislation just yet, right? Not quite yet. We have we have some uh, preliminary language. We're trying to uh, uh, craft it so that we can uh, ultimately get it out. Try to get out of committee and get 26 votes in the House and in the Senate and 26 votes in the and 102 votes in the House and the governor's signature. It's going to have a rough go. And I want to talk about that, though. You say it's going to have a rough go. And I think that everyone right away thinks, how could you ever get this legislation passed when you're asking people to give up power, your colleagues to give up some power to do this? So why even do it? Uh, Because you have to try. I mean... I've been in office a long time. It's three steps forward, two steps back, never say never, never give up. I mean, life's a challenge, and uh, if you think you're, something's more appropriately done this way, then, then, then try it and instead of sitting on your hands. I, I see no problem in putting it out there and, and hopefully garnering some public support. I understand that the Republican majority doesn't want to happen. And it's sort of interesting because the Democrats just controlled this, uh, just, just won the Supreme Courts in Pennsylvania. They're saying we have to rent some friends in the Supreme Court now. So they're looking at their long term. Uh, next reapportionment, I'm not going to be in office. I'll be retired by then. But in the future, wouldn't it be nice to have a Pennsylvania that's a little competitive, that's not, that one side doesn't completely dominate, so that we can have that, that legitimate bantering of philosophies back and forth and go, back, uh, go, go fast forward backwards to the days when we actually sat down, compromised, built a consensus, talked about the budget, and tried to do what was in the best interest of Pennsylvania. Of course, having a difference of philosophies and ideologies placed in there, but actually making something happen. Let me go a little bit further. Uh, right now, you're, you're planning on proposing this uh, in the legislature. What would you think about a constitutional convention where this would be something that uh, would be considered? And that's why I'm just introducing as a bill, because I think a constitutional convention would probably be so much more difficult to accomplish. And if we do have a Pennsylvania constitutional convention, because uh, it seems that every controversial issue, people say, let's have a constitutional convention. You have to make it zeroed in on a, one or two specific things and just say, you know, government's all screwed up and just throw it all away, because there's a lot of good out there, too. But uh, I'd rather try to take the legislative route, because it's it's a quicker path uh, to do it constitutionally. I have to get legislation passed uh, through one session and do a governor's desk, and then through another session to the governor's desk, and then finally by a plebiscite. So you can just see there, there it's an incredible amount of time, uh, even if it's fast-tracked. And everywhere along the way, it could be jammed up. Here in Pennsylvania, we don't have binding referendums. Uh, but what would you think about putting this as a question on uh, on the ballot as a referendum? Well, actually, I never thought of that. That wouldn't be a bad bad concept to see what at least where the public's perception is on the, such an issue, which could give, which could give it strength. I I think most people would like to say, "Hey, let's try to make this a little less political and a little fairer out there." 
All right, let's take a phone call from Rick in Lidditz. Rick, you're on the air. Hello, Rick. I don't know if this is Rick or not. Let me just uh, make sure that uh, we have this. Uh, hello, is this Rick? Okay, I'm going to put uh, this caller on hold because uh, obviously right. that's not Rick, or Rick is not uh, listening right now. We do have a delay, so if you if you call in, listen to the telephone rather than the radio. Lee from York emailed us, Senator, says, For kicks, I looked at the vote totals for the Pennsylvania House races in 2014. I added up the votes each candidate received, adding zero for a party who did not put up a candidate. Unless I made some serious errors... The Democratic candidates across Pennsylvania had more votes than Republican candidates, Yes, the, yet the Republicans gained seats, claimed the mandate, and that hubris may have led to a budget stalemate. Now, you know, he's taken a political point of view there, but what do you think about what he had to say? They've done exactly what they wanted to do, because there should be more Democratic votes at all, because there's more Democrats in Pennsylvania. But what they've done is they... They have created the artificial political boundaries to make sure that there's more Republican seats so that you're going to have more Democratic votes, but those districts are, are more condensed, and actually they come from the urban areas, but they've made them so, so largely Democratic that they won't have any, any spillover to the next, the next door neighbor to make that a competitive seat. So the Republican seats, even though less Republicans vote, they crafted it so they have more seats in the House and more seats in the Senate. Isn't it to- and that's... And that's ultimately the real problem out here. We've created these super seats. They've created, they've crafted, they drove the lines so that they'd have, in a sense, an unfair advantage. It's politics. I get that. But what I want to do is try to make it, okay, you're never going to sit there and make it uncompetitive or, 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 or the people in power. But let's reduce it a little bit is what I'm looking at. Now, let's draw these lines a little bit differently to make it more representative of what Pennsylvania really is. Let's go to Bill in Lancaster. Bill, you're on the air. Morning, Scott. Good morning. And I want to compliment the representative on uh, being so altruistic and trying to do something to help us, the people, gain back control of our government. Um, I have one other suggestion and comment. I had a uh, chief engineer in Karachi in Pakistan who once said to me he had the opinion that democracy would only work in a cold climate. Now, that sounds strange, but when you think about it, democracy only works when the people are actually working at it. And if it's a warm climate, it's uh, manana, manana tomorrow, and nothing ever gets done. (laughs) And we have to work at this. And if he cannot get this through the legislature, can we then consider a question, binding or non-binding, on the ballot to let us say, yes, we want a committee to vote on the redistricting and get rid of the gerrymandering. There was a a woman who had a computer program that was pretty impartial, and uh, everybody thought it was good, but I think they just ignored her. All right. Thank you very much for your call. And uh, Bill kind of followed up with what we were talking about with the referendum, but he did mention uh, the woman who uh, came up with uh, districts that were fairer on her own and uh, actually, the Supreme Court kind of considered those more than uh, what was originally drawn up. I've gotten a couple of questions here from uh, listeners who have asked that kind of question. With today's technology, wouldn't it make more sense to utilize that technology to balance these populations out? Uh, absolutely. And, and uh, the gentleman spoke before. You brought that up. That 
that's a nice way to get now you have the flavor and, and, and the opinion of the people themselves. And I think that's important to say to take maybe maybe have that on the ballot out there so they yeah, we want to see a change. Sure, we have computers. Now, I've seen some uh, states out in the Midwest, obviously they're squares, and they just made squares out of their uh, legislative districts. Ours won't work that way because our terrain, our, geo- our geography, and actually our demographics are, are much different. But uh, uh, surely you can make them contiguous with counties, contiguous along the mountain ridges, contiguous with the communities, and to try to uh, fulfill, the, uh, I guess, the original ideals of the Founding Fathers, to have a fair and balanced form of uh, uh, discourse out there, and, and that's all I'm trying to do. Look, I, I I fully understand the battle lines that are drawn and the things that go on, but, but reduce them a little bit. What we've come is we've created a stalemate in this state, and this whole mission is now to give Governor Wolf absolutely no breaks, don't help him out at all, and I know there's an issue of taxes. We go back to the, to, to the corporate administration that made budget cuts, not as many as you think, but really used up every financial tool in the book, to balance his books, and now really, leave, and nobody, it's not his problem anymore. He's not the governor; it's Governor Wolf's. But looking to the future, try to defeat Wolf in a term, and he ends up with uh, another governor coming in the next reapportionment, which is a master plan. Mm-hmm. So let's talk specifically about what you're proposing. You're promo- proposing an 11-member commission. Who would make up that commission? Uh, independent people, but they would be picked from the four caucuses in the administration. So, so you're really going to have the give and take there of the political parties because, uh, and that's what we're trying. To, I'm, I'm trying to isolate the politicians as much as possible, but it's very difficult to do because you have to create these people and you can't just pull them out of a hat. And they have to be intelligent people that understand. You just can't randomly just pick people from Pennsylvania. These people have to be able to communicate with each other at, at a level that's relatively, uh, uh, relatively high because they're making political decisions that are going to face people for 10 years. How do you keep the politics out of the commission? You, you can't. What you try to do, you try to reduce it. That's why, that's why I'm trying to uh, craft that language now to try to keep it as apolitical as possible. This was modeled after California. You mentioned that earlier. Right. Uh, I don't know whether it's been in in place long enough that you can see what kind of impact it's have, what, what or had I should say. Uh, what has uh, California's experiences been? Well, I think we have to wait the next portion to see if they've okay. implemented. Uh, we did realize that uh, uh, the way our constitutional is written, the final the final plan, the final map, still has to be voted on by the House, the Senate, and signed by a governor. So we still have, in a sense, uh, that, that fail-safe mechanism for the politicians that they can say, we don't accept this uh, more fairer, uh, nurturing, competitive uh, boundaries. We, uh, we disagree, and we're going to write our own anyhow. Uh, obviously, the way the system is set up, it's very difficult. But if we could start this discussion, uh, maybe we could take it to the next level. All right, let's take uh, a few more phone calls here. Our guest uh, is uh, Senator John Wozniak from uh, Cambria County. Ted from Harrisburg is on the line. Ted, you're on the air. Hello, Ted. Good morning. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to address this issue. I'd like to thank the senator for his efforts. The vast majority of the public want this, but as you alluded to, the uh, the, the entrenched powers won't allow this to happen. 
And I think that's the, the root cause. I mean, that's the problem. Partisan politics and the entrenched power brokers. And to get to that, I think we need to look at the issue of term limits. When you peel away the onion of what causes all these problems, it's the entrenched power brokers who have a vested interest in keeping things the same and maintaining their power. So if you look at term limits uh, and could maybe make some similar type initiatives to install term limits, I think you'd go a long way to solving all of these problems, including the uh, the crisis of, of uh, gerrymandering. All and right. I'll take my call off the line. Thank uh, you. Ted, thank you very much for your call. He brings up another uh, suggestion when you talk about government reform. Right. I, I know that's out there. And a number of decades ago, that was uh, 12 and out, and there's people still sitting there saying at 14 years and 16 years saying, well, I'm trying to get that law passed. I'm not such a big agreement uh, with term limits uh, for the executive, absolutely, but I think for the legislative branch because of the nature of the, of the business itself. Uh, every two years, every four years, they make that determination. What it really comes down to be is the makeup of the senatorial, congressional, or legislative districts because that's the term limits there. Because if you have a seat that's 90% D, it doesn't matter who's in that seat. It's going to be a Democrat. If you make it a 90% Republican seat, it doesn't matter who's, who the person is or how long they're in there. It's going to be a Republican seat. And what I'm trying to do is make those seats more competitive. Nobody can uh, accuse me of being a, a liberal Democrat. I, I'm, I'm out here in west-central Pennsylvania. By its nature, it's very conservative. I uh, probably voted very independently and uh, on the state senate for many many years uh, but that's not the issue the issue is going to be there's more r's than there are d's now it's a very competitive and, and some other issues out there but I, I don't think term limits is the solution to this particular problem it won't fix it that's not that that's not the core issue it's those that have the majority are really drawing the maps but but senator let me push back for just a moment and i'm sure, sure ted may agree with this when he's uh, talking about uh, uh, term limits is that you yourself said that uh, you know this could be a generation before this changes around because uh, it's so entrenched but what also happens is th those districts are so safe for whether it's a republican or a democrat in uh, in some cases in philadelphia maybe or in allegheny county southwestern pennsylvania that there's no opposition. I mean, I don't know how many, uh, I think it was the majority of legislative districts that uh, representatives in the House and senators did not have any opposition the last time they ran. So, you know, if you don't have anyone from the opposite party running, then, you know, basically there's no choice there. And you're not going to get anybody from the opposite party because if you look at Pennsylvania's a T, and I'm one of the, I might be the only, except for, uh, uh, Dauphin County, and I'm the only Democratic senator between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. Talk about Southwest. Southwest has become very Republican because of reapportionment. Uh, a Washington County seat has become Republican, so has a Fayette County seat has become Republican. I mean, they, they, they've been for 50 years Democratic, and you can see by, by the powers that be, they've changed those dynamics. Um, but you're not going to get opposition in the, in, in, in the opposite party if you have districts that are 75, 65, 85, 90 percent of one political party, because you're just diving on a sword, because you're never going to win a general election when you are down that many numbers. Well, you see, that's my point, is if you say you're never going to win a general election when you're down those numbers, then maybe term limits is an option for it. But that won't make a difference, because it'll still be the same political party. 
Yeah, there is that. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much for for your call, Ted. Let's uh, take a couple more. Anthony from York. Anthony, you're on the air. Yes, I just wanted to say I'm a long-time political person. I've lived in several states. Uh, in the early 80s, the same thing happened in Illinois, and they went to court. The Republicans were at the losing end of that time. That was under the governorship of uh, the famous Jim Thompson, and uh, they lost in court. Uh, remember that in 81 also, 40 circuit court uh, uh, judges in Illinois went to prison. And, but I wanted to draw a comparison here. This state is overwhelmingly Democratic. I heard a Hispanic executive say on a show back uh, about three years ago, he said that regardless of what the Republicans do, within less than a generation, they're going to be outvoted because, regardless of how much they're demanding, because of the number of Hispanics and Asians and the younger whites who don't vote Republican very well is happening. So I love what the state senator is saying. I speak on a previous show. Uh, all right. Thank you very much for your call. What about that? Uh, Pennsylvania does have changing demographics, just like the rest of the country. Maybe not as changing as much as states like Texas, Florida, California, but we do have a changing demographic in this state. Sure. And particularly in the eastern part of the state. Right. But I still don't see any strategic change because they will keep those demographics where they're particularly at. Uh, and even if the... Uh, the Hispanic population grows, becomes predominantly Democratic. They're still going to be in those areas that are already Democratic. You're not, you're, you're not reaching it out and, and, and stretching it. So I still think when you look at the map, you've got to sit there and you, you've got to shift from having these 90, 90%. There might be nothing you can do in the, in the core city of Philadelphia or even inner city Pittsburgh. But once you get outside of the, the core areas, certainly you're going to be able to draw lines that are 60-40 at least. Uh, and that's not what we're doing now. We're, we're, we're really creating a lopsided system. And, it's, and I, in my opinion, it's not, it's not fair to Pennsylvania because if you talk to the average citizen out there, they're probably more moderate than what the legislature uh, represents. And that means both Democrats and Republicans. And I, and I think the inability to get those type of people in office is really doing a disservice to the vast majority of Pennsylvanians, whether they be independent, Republican, or Democrat. Sir, I'm only going to take one more call here because I know you have to run. Yeah. Uh, let's see. We have uh, Barry from Harrisburg. Barry, you're on the air. Uh, hi, Scott. Good morning. Thanks for uh, taking my call. Well, uh, Barry Kaufman of Common Cause, right? All right, Barry. That, that is correct. And I want to commend the senator uh, for working on this. Um, you know, I think we're at an interesting point in time where there is opportunities, where there, there are opportunities for success on this. Uh, we've been working on this for 30 years now, closer to 40. And uh, I think the stars are starting to align. Uh, the, uh, the voters out there now recognize that they were actually people who have given up their power um, by allowing a, a very tightly structured, a very partisan redistricting system to, to take hold of Pennsylvania. And they're getting ready to take it back. And in fact, a new coalition has formed. It's called uh, FairDistrictsPA.com. We welcome everybody from regular voters to the Pennsylvania's luminaries to join. It's got a growing and large number of organizations from across the political spectrum supporting it. And uh, this may just be the point in time where we can fix the system. Uh, there is momentum going that direction, and we can get to a point where we'll have competitive elections again, and which will lead to government accountability. And when you have those two things happen, you begin to set up a system where maybe we can just end the gridlock in Harrisburg and Washington. Well, okay, Senator, before you uh, reply or respond to uh, what Barry Kaufman had to say, Barry, let me, I have a question for you. When you say that there's some momentum, 
Senator Wozniak said earlier that, you know, he's not real optimistic this would make it through the legislature. So why are you optimistic that the stars are aligning, as you say? Well, he, I mean, he's absolutely right. This is not an easy lift. This is going to take a lot of work. Uh, the, the citizens of Pennsylvania have to stand up and say, you know, the system is not working well. We need to fix it. But, you know, some of the uh, dynamics the uh, senator talked about, you know, we have a, a, a very uh, dominant Republican legislature and now a very dominant uh, Democratic Supreme Court. Uh, that Supreme Court is very likely to pick the chairman of the commission and uh, will be the tiebreaker in the commission. So I think we're at a point in time where the voters are fed up. The voters finally get it. On Almost every time you have an issue like this on your show, you have somebody calling about redistricting. Um, they understand the power politics at play. So I think the fact all these things are happening right now uh, gives the members of both the major parties reason to want to sit down and deal, say, finally, instead of continuing to manipulate the system, why don't we actually go out and fix it so it works for the citizens? Senator, you, you have a response to that? Yeah. And I want to thank Barry for calling because we we don't always see eye to eye, but see, there's always there's always those sweet spots out there that you try to find. Where do you find something in common? And I think this is a great one. And I want to make one other point. It's not just uh, within itself. It's not just the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, but even within the party yourself, with your leaderships, uh, they have a tendency to want to maintain control over their own caucuses too. So this dynamics is pretty large, and and and, and trying to return some of that authority back to the public. I think it's important. Uh, as I said earlier, you're never going to take the politics out of politics. It's the nature of humankind. But what I want to try to do is let's make it a little more objective. And I think that makes a better way of governing. Barry Kaufman, thank you very much for calling in. And Senator John Wozniak from Cambria County, thank you very much for joining us today. And uh, we'll keep an eye on uh, on what ha- is what's happening. Now, I don't know, that referendum idea sounds like a good one to me. It sure does. <laughs> Senator, thank you very much. All right, thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We often hear that early childhood education, learning in a structured setting before a child enters kindergarten, is one of the keys to a child growing up to be a good student. Research also indicates early childhood education is especially important for children living in poverty. The Joshua Group is a nonprofit that operates a program for kids in Harrison's, uh, in Harrisburg's Allison Hill section. Joining us is uh, Kirk Hallett, who is the founder and director of the Joshua Group. Mr. Hallett, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. We really appreciate the opportunity to be able to, to, to discuss it. Well, let me tell our listeners at home that if you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. I'm going to start with one of the basics. Why is early childhood education so important? Well, uh, I, I know from just being Kirk Hallett, not being an educator, that um, the, the studies show that if a child does not get um, it, let me talk about Harrisburg. Okay. Let me talk about poverty. And, and, Har- and Harrisburg is very representative it's of, every, everywhere of, else, the, of well, uh, let me talk other of, places across the state. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, if a child enters um, in poverty, early childhood education is um, not available and or as much as it is in the, in the suburbs. A child hits uh, kindergarten and actually not not really mandated to be in a seat in a classroom till he's he or she is eight with nothing no reading or writing or early childhood skills or at least a, a limited amount uh, creates 
the child starting behind before they even start up. Um, it's shown that uh, the big national studies and educational studies have shown how important and critical early childhood is to a child really being successful in kindergarten and first grade and getting the right start. We believe, we've come to find out um, as an organization that in education is the anti-poverty program that works. Not, I didn't come with that. I've learned that. I've watched children be successful in areas when they weren't before. And I don't mean successful. I'm talking about just being able to go along and get along at their grade level. Um, if you uh, and living and being in, in on Allison Hill and being around it every single day, you can see the results, negative and positive, with somebody either being in school or not being in school. Like what? Um, I think um, we have fifty kids in our pre-K program right now, and those fifty kids, if we weren't doing what we do, and we're doing it with the EITC, it's not Kirk Hallett, it's EITC. I'm just you know put it together, uh, they would be sitting at home right now, I'm suspecting, or somewhere, uh, not, not getting the kind of enrichment they need to be successful. They hit first grade. It doesn't show up in first grade, but it'll probably certainly show up, we see, I think studies shows, by third grade, fourth grade, and middle school. They're behind. They're disinterested. They're, there's all kinds of other stuff going on in their lives that, that, that I can't even talk about on the air and some of it that uh, I think leads to um, the dropout rate that exists with the city of Harrisburg schools. And it's not the school district's fault. It is the challenge of the school district to try to um, provide the environment for learning for kids in poverty. Their dropout, their, their graduation rate is 45%. So less than half the kids, and I might be a little higher now, uh, that, that attend that school district are graduating. I, I think, I think partially because they, they're not where they need to be academically and successful. And if you're not successful, you're a failure, I guess is what I want to say. I, I, we've had guests on the air before, and I've read research that uh, says that often, very often, that if a student is not successful by third grade, right. they're probably not going to be. Right. Uh, and just for some background purposes, and we're going to talk about this too, EITC that you mentioned, the Earned Income Tax Credit. Right. And that became news here recently because of uh, the state budget impasse. And we're going to talk about that for a okay. moment. Um, who You mentioned you have 50 students, uh, right. pre-K students. Who right. are these students? They're all uh, city students, city kids, all generally within walking distance on Allison Hill of our center, all parents who we... I say pre-qualify, they're in poverty, they're making less than $25,000 a year, all not able to get into Head Start, which is the only provider of early childhood education in the city, um, free, if you will. Uh, and, Ed and Head Start has a waiting list of 300 kids. So when we found that out, being the organization we are, we decided to take a stand and maybe take not just a stand, but do something. Um, EITC allows us to do that. That's the money. Uh, we put together a program to take 50 of those kids off the 300 waiting list kids. And we know now that, so we have them three, four, and five-year-olds, uh, two grade levels, if you will, two sessions a day, not 50 kids at one time, 15 at most at one time, with a meal, um, that they, when they hit kindergarten in the school district, they're going to be ready for kindergarten. 
Uh, so the teacher uh, standing up in front of that class who has, at this point, I think there's 30 kids per class in kindergarten in Harrisburg School District. That's not their fault. But a teacher has to be teaching someone who's ready for kindergarten and a whole bunch of kids who aren't. That's a tough, that's a tough sell. Um, but more importantly, it's what, you know, the kid is being, the child is being denied, I think, a basic right. Um, we, and we could talk about that forever, but what's really happening is we are creating a, a systematic social problem in three and four and five-year-olds. Because we know, as you say, the studies are, if we can't have, those children aren't up to reading proficiency by third grade, they're most likely going to be dropouts. They're most likely going to end up in prison. There's a real disparity in terms of, of um, color, if you will, and culture. And uh, so it, it's like a, um, a contingent liability. It's like pay me now, pay me later. And I know, I, I probably can't do the arithmetic or the math, but I know that out of the $100 million is in EITC, I know, I know with our kids, and we have actually a total of 120 because we have grade school kids as well, I know that somewhere along the line in that, in that criminal dropout services, we're going to reduce $100 million costs out of that real easy. So um, this is something I learned, I've become passionate about, and this is why I'm I was really happy to have the opportunity to talk to you. Well, I can hear you. I can hear you. The the passion in your voice about (laughs) it. Um, Now, let's talk about that earned income tax credit, Mm -hmm. because uh, when we didn't have any budget at all. Right. Now, Governor Wolf has signed uh, uh, a partial budget. Blue lined a lot of it, too. Released some funds to uh, education. Just so our listeners know. That EITC, that money, does not come directly from the state. What it does is uh, businesses or anyone who wants to contribute to uh, an organization like yours gets an earned income tax credit. And when the state didn't have a budget... That wasn't. They were not going to get that tax credit, which would discourage people from contributing. Since the governor did sign a partial budget in December, was EITC part of it? Did that keep anyone, and I say anyone, I mean person, business, organization, from contributing to your organization? Yes. Uh, the governor, God bless him, um, at Christmas Eve said, okay, release the funds, but contingent, contingent on, you know, what may or may not happen with the budget. Uh, That means between Christmas and New Year's, because all the checks had to be written by January 1st, uh, that check had to be dated, signed by those companies. These are large corporations. They don't do business that way. Or we've found from some of our contributors, they're not going to write a check to the scholarship or, or to a scholarship or to, to get the credit on a contingent maybe that it could or could. Provisional, I think it was. That's the word, provisional. Uh, they're not going to write a check provisionally. They don't do business that way. Since that time, I think there's some action movement in the legislature. I don't know where it is. I just know it's out there that uh, they are trying to get, you know, retroactive, if you will, so somebody could write a check in 2016 and take their 2015 credit. But it's all up in the air right now. But you know what, Scott? Everything's up in the air right now. And, and there's so... Um, but I'm here 
for these 120 kids. They're up in the air. I I don't want to be sitting, and I'm not trying to be, you know, I'm not trying to, this isn't a tear jerker thing. This is for real. This is important to our community. I don't want to be sitting at the, at whatever I am, telling kids they can't come back to this pre-K. I don't want to be in a situation where I'm telling a kid who's in our program, who's spending two hours a day extra schoolwork because he's in our program, because he or she, or because they have a scholarship, that you can't come back anymore because we don't have this EITC figured out. I don't know if the public really gets that as much as I, as I wish they would. And it's not because they don't want to. It's because they're not sitting there looking at these kids every day. So that's why I'm here. And that's why I'm glad to be here is to tell that story. I, I saw that you got a $15,000 uh, contribution. Was it last week? Or is it this week? Well, yes, last week. Well, this week. I'm confused. Okay. This week. <laughs> yeah, from Conrad Siegel, actually. Actually, Now, yes. was that part, would they get an EITC credit now? Or does no. that have to, that rely on? Uh, That's not an EITC gift. Okay. That was just a. Gift. Gift. Okay. Uh, they got a gift. They won a prize. They had. They could give it to any ch- charity they wanted to, if they will, or nonprofit, I should say. They chose us. That was a blessing out of nowhere for us. So, but as I as I was this morning, we had a, 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 a representative from I'm going to say Philadelphia Insurance Company come in, and she was telling us that they were all set to do the EITC gifts out there. Uh, they really like our work because they can see that we don't. This isn't just oh, let's give it to a scholarship organization. They give it to Joshua. We actually look at it as an investment. We don't look at it as, oh, here's a scholarship, sir, or daughter, or whatever. This is like, okay, here's some money that we can do something, use for these kids so they are better off today than they were yesterday. Well, here, the, um, when they found out, uh, they're so committed to this, when they found out that the governor had said release the funds uh, at Christmas Eve, they called two of their people back from Christmas vacation to make it happen because they knew they didn't want to put up with the or worry about the 216, 215 stuff. And so there's a whole lot of confusion out there right now. And maybe it'll get resolved and maybe it won't. But I, I, I you can see that um, I want to it's not that I want anybody to do anything that I don't think that, I, you know, that I want them to do. I just know how important it is to all of us that 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 it get done so that I don't have to worry about it. And these kids don't have to have, worry about it. They're not worried about it because they don't know it. Have you turned any children away so no, far? No, we have. Has, has it been close to that? We are getting close to the point where we call the tipping point. You know, because we have a total of 120 kids in an EITC program of some sort. We have, uh, and they're in the pre-K, and we're providing pre-K. We're not. This is scholarships to kids who wouldn't be in pre-K. And we're using the Opportunity Scholarships, which is directed towards kids and family school districts. So EITC was originally devised as a school choice thing. It's not for these kids. It's a chance. So, um, yeah, I could probably, we could probably bring another 120 kids into the program. But we're not ready to do that because we don't have uh, the funding to support that and the sustained funding to support that. The last thing I ever, ever want to do, because I see the kids, I see what, what it means to them and their, as students and, and their success. I and mean, when we have 20, 25 kids in college now who I'm quite certain, by their own admission, wouldn't be there 
if it wasn't coming through the Joshua Group. We have a, a, a way we do business with these kids, but we couldn't do it if we didn't have the EITC to put them in the private school seat in the first place. Just out of curiosity, um, do you have a curriculum or how do you work with uh, with these kids? Now, because many are coming from poverty, I'm yeah. sure that, you know, one of the things that public schools deal with all, all the time, special education. Right. I, I mean, your curriculum, how do you work with the kids? It, it, well, our curriculum... It, for the grade school kids, we provide scholarships for them to attend a private school. Those are Catholic schools, Harrisburg Catholic Elementary, St. Stephen's Episcopal, and Bishop McDevitt High School. We have 70 kids in those schools. The school provides the curriculum and the services they need. Mm -hmm. What we do is require them to then come to the Joshua Learning Center after school for at least several hours, three to five, four days a week, to make sure they are academically successful in those schools. Now, that's the grade school kids. That's the grade school kids. What kid. about the pre-K? The pre-K kids, we, we, steal our, we steal the curriculum right out of, you know, Harrisburg school districts or a Head Start's curriculum, which is driven by the Harrisburg school district. So, but our kids are only in school like two and a half hours. So we are totally academically focused. We added computers to the, to the you know, three and four and five-year-olds Nothing like it, Scott. To they're, see him. they're contributed too, right? Yeah, they're 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 down doing the they're you know working on a software program on the computers and they're sitting in a chair like yours, but their feet are dangling. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we've added that as part of our curriculum. Social skills as part of our curriculum. Uh, line up straight line and don't touch each other. Uh, those kinds of things that uh, kids need to adapt to and learn to be, you know, know how to be a student, I guess, if you will. And it's not about it's about when you put 30 little kids in a room, you need some sort of control and order. So we do a lot of that. But we definitely have a curriculum in our little pre-K program. And we're trying to decide, okay, should we expand it? Should we get another class? Should we do a kindergarten class? What should we do now? But I can't. we can't make those kind of decisions while um, – you know, everybody else out there is worrying about, you know, privatization of, uh, of, of uh, liquor stores. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, come on now. <laughs> we, we only have about a minute left. I want to That's thank fine. you very much for thank being you. with us today. What do you want to see happen with the legislature and what needs to happen? I would like for let's just say this. I don't know how it works. I don't know how the political machine works. But if I could have my day, I would sit down with the governor. If I could, and this is, I know it's ridiculous and people are out there laughing, I'm sure, but I, I, I would say, um, you know what, I know you can, I don't know that you know how important this is to these kids. I get the political stuff. I understand how you need to do this and that, and this is a wedge, and this is whatever, and hostage here and all that. You want to get this, you want to get that. Come up and see the kids and uh, come to our center and then you'll know why. I wish you would just wave your wand and make this happen. Kirk Hallett is the founder and director of the Joshua Group. Thank you very much for being with us today. You're welcome. Thank you. Coming up on tomorrow program, we're, tomorrow's program, we're going to talk a little bit about the Zika virus, uh, a local college professor, Capital Week in Review, and also uh, going into the Super Bowl weekend, talk a little bit about those Super Bowl commercials.